Please take your copy of God's Word and open it then to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Uh, For the sake of time, I'm going to not read the entire section to you. I'm simply going to walk through the first 16 verses of Romans 16. But before I do, let me just put it in context for you. Here at this last chapter, Paul is zeroing in on really five main ideas as he wraps up his letter. He wants to start chapter 16 with a commendation of a very special servant of the Lord who has been a partner to him in ministry. Then he wants to give several greetings to the people who are in Rome. Then he's going to give that church a very important warning. After that will come several salutations, not greeting the people who are in Rome, but sending greetings from the people who are with Paul in Corinth. And then there is a doxology at the end. So five big ideas. Those big ideas are what we'll cover over the next two weeks as we work our way through Romans 16. Now, I confess that when I opened up this passage and began to study it, I was thinking, how am I going to turn this into a sermon? And you might be thinking to yourself, how is he going to turn this into a sermon? I still don't know, but I'm going to be praying that the Lord will help. And that through this, this morning, we are going to see these truths that are going to be encouraging to us and edifying and will build us up and will remind us of the power of the gospel, will put before us the reality that these are Gentile believers who Paul, in the course of his evangelism, would have brought face to face with the eternal weight of the law of God and caused them to see their complete inadequacy before him and their unholiness And then presented to them the the beauty of the gospel and the hope of the good news. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, their dead hearts were made alive through regeneration. And they were given faith in that gospel. And then responded with repentance and fruit. I believe that that's what you're going to see as the underlying theme and foundation for all of Romans 16. And so... I believe we're going to delight as that is unpacked for us. But the first I want you to see here in the first couple of verses of chapter 16 is a commendation. The word commendation is the best word to use. In your English translation, it might actually say, I commend at the beginning of 16 verse 1. Paul is commending somebody. What does commend mean? Well, it means that we give them a good recommendation to recommend means that we vouch for them. It's like when somebody is looking for a new job and the person who is potentially going to give them that job calls you up because you're a reference. And the hope by that person who's applying for the job is that when their future employer calls you, you give them a good recommendation. That's the same idea. You commend them. You recommend them. But in the original here, the word is used two other times in the book of Romans. Romans chapter... 3 verse 5 and chapter 5 verse 8, and in both cases it's translated the word show, that righteousness is shown, it is put forward, it is put on display, it is manifest as being legitimate, it is set up to destroy any objection. And so for Paul to use that same word and apply it to this precious servant, it means that he is going to put this person forward as a display of glory as an irrefutable example of something to be imitated. And who does he choose to put forward? 
Who does he choose to send the letter to the Romans with? Who is entrusted to go all the way from Corinth to Rome along with a small band of staff in order to deliver to the Roman believers perhaps the greatest work of theology ever to be written and inspired by the Holy Spirit? Who is given that monumental task of carrying the Word of God to the church that meets in the center of the civilized world? What an assignment. You know who gets it? Someone named Phoebe, if we pronounce it properly, but we're going to say Phoebe because so many of you have been trained up on Phoebe. But just in the back of your mind, if you want to impress somebody, call, say Phoebe, and they go, oh, no, no, you mean Phoebe. And you say, actually, it's Phoebe. Phoebe gets the assignment. And so, as Paul wraps up this letter, he zeroes in attention on magnifying this faithful servant and sister and supporter named Phoebe. I want to commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant. The word is the word deacon. She was a servant, like a deacon in the church. She may have been an actual deacon of the church, we don't know, but she was certainly a servant in the church. Would have served the needs that could only have been served by a woman. There were needs in the church that men could not fulfill. In the early church, for example, men did not baptize women. The male-female separation was very strong in that culture, still is in the Middle East. Men would also never go and visit a woman who was sick and be alone with her in the private quarters of her home. Men, of course, would also not care for the elderly women in all of the various needs that they would have had. So there were women in the church who were set apart as servants, later on as formally recognized deacons, for the purpose of ministering to the needs of the women, and also to the men, for that matter, in the church, the needs of the church. And, and Phoebe was one of these. And so she is a servant, she is a sister, and she is at the church that meets in Kenkriahi. This was the port city right near Corinth. So you think about it this way. The city of Corinth was right there on that isthmus in Greece, and off to the side there was a port. It's kind of like for us today. You've got the main city center, and then just out a little ways you've got the airport. Well, Phoebe was a minister, a servant, in that church. And so Paul knew her because Paul, you remember, at the time of the writing was in Corinth. And so she would have come in and would have met with Paul, and Paul says to her, I need to entrust you with this letter, and I want to send it by way of you to go to Rome. That, verse 2, and this is speaking to the believers there, I commend our sister to you, our servant to you, that in order that you may welcome her in the Lord. The word welcome there is different than the word in, in chapter 14. Here it means a looking for. You're eagerly anticipating her arrival. You're, you're scanning the horizon. 
You're saying, let's prepare ourselves for when she arrives. I'm, I'm eagerly anticipating her getting here. Why? Because she's carrying with her this letter. And receive her in. Welcome her in. Do so in the Lord. She is one of us. And in a, in a way worthy of the saints. Don't treat her like just some kind of messenger. She is not just the UPS guy dropping a package off at the door. This is a family member who has arrived carrying a precious gift. And you need to welcome her in. And not only that, but you also need to be prepared as a church to help her. You see, she comes with a particular task to accomplish. The scholars believe that Phoebe was not merely on her way to Rome to deliver mail for Paul, but that Paul found out that Phoebe was already going to Rome anyway because this is a woman of significant means. She is a businesswoman. She is going there to do whatever business she had to do there in Rome, and so Paul sent her with this letter. And when she gets there, the church is to help her in whatever she may need from you. It carried the connotation of whatever she needs from you to accomplish the work that she's doing there in Rome. And the reason for this, notice it, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. We use the word patronize in a rather condescending way. To, to patronize somebody is to, to speak down to them, to be condescending to them. Uh, the word is not negative. The, the word patronize in fact, is where we get uh, the good idea of having patrons come and, and, and buy things from your store, for example, uh, or clients that will come and, and pay for your services. And in this case, the word patron is applied in, in more or less the, the old English sense of it, meaning somebody who would care for an artist so that that person could give themselves entirely to whatever artistic work or guild they were skilled at and didn't have to go through the everyday hassle of making money. The greatest artists of the previous generations were men and women who had wealthy patrons who would care for them. In fact, patronage is a lost art. I was recently having some meetings up at seminary in Los Angeles, and we were sitting in the boardroom, and happened to be talking about this subject, and as I looked along the wall, there were four large portraits of famous pastors and evangelists. And one by one, I just noted that every one of those men did what they did because a wealthy patron made it possible for them to serve the Lord and not have to have another job. In fact, none of them were paid by their churches. That was a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, they were looked after by a wealthy man or a wealthy woman or a wealthy family who would make sure that they were all their needs met so that they could dedicate themselves entirely to the teaching and preaching of God's Word or to evangelism. Well, in the same way, Phoebe is a wealthy, generous patron. If you were to just translate the word in sort of a, a wooden kind of literal way, you could translate it as one who is set over somebody else, or one who is a guardian, or one who is a protectress. So she served as a guardian over, a protector for, a, a financial provider for the apostle Paul. But not Paul alone, it was Paul as well as many others. So the way that I look at this first part of 
Romans 16 is the elevation and the commending of a woman who is a sister and a saint and a supporter. And I want to be careful here not to just draw some moralistic application. I don't want to say, now women, you go out and be a foibe. But some of you could be. Some of you here, maybe the Lord is bringing to your attention the reality that you do have resources. And that as much as you understand the importance of giving faithfully to ministries and to charities, He might also be giving you an example in someone like Foybe. Maybe you should consider what it would be like to be the patron of somebody who is dedicating themselves entirely to the preaching of the gospel. Now, if you really want to use those funds wisely, you can engage in some geo-arbitrage here, and you can probably meet the needs of some of the pastors that I'll have the privilege of going to minister to in Paraguay for about what you're paying every month for your phone. It's amazing what we can do when we start to capitalize on how much we have in this country versus how little it costs to live in some other countries and become literally the patrons of local church pastors so that they don't have to have any other job. They can dedicate themselves to the church, to the preaching of the Word, to study, to evangelism. Allow yourself to consider that. But as we move on, I want you to see another group of people, and these are more or less the partners that Paul has in ministry. Notice, please, in verse 3, Paul continues. He says, greet Prisca, that's the wife of the team, Prisca and Aquila. This was a dynamic duo. Uh, These were two very well-educated, well-informed, gifted servants of the Lord. Scholars believe that perhaps Prisca was mentioned first because she was either the more prominent of the two, she was the wealthier of the two, or possibly she was the more theologically knowledgeable of the two. This couple, you'll remember, were the ones who together took aside Apollos, this man who was already mighty in the Scriptures, and showed him a better way, taught him instructed him, guided him, said, said, you're right, you got the gospel right, but you got these things kind of wrong. It's like taking somebody who's got the gospel right, but some secondary issue they've got, they've got wrong, or, or maybe they're a legalist, or, or maybe they're doing something that is really harmful, or it's um, not quite a full expression of their freedom in the gospel, and they were able to bring him in, and they were able to teach him and instruct him, and they were a team. He's a husband-wife team. And it's amazing that Paul calls them this because they were some of the first people he met when he went to Corinth. If you want to follow up on their story a little bit, you can go to Acts 18 later on this afternoon, not right now. And in Acts 18, you get the story of this amazing couple. And, And I just want to say here briefly because it ties in well with what Ruth was instructing us in earlier regarding the situation in Ukraine. Consider God's providence in this for a moment. Claudius, the wicked emperor, kicks out every Jew from Rome. Hates the Jews. Kicks out all the Jews from Rome. And because of that act, because of this exile of Jews, this particular couple, because they made tents for a living and they could pretty much do that anywhere they lived, settle in Corinth. And there they set up shop making tents. And because they must have been at least somewhat successful, they had a large enough house to not only have a place to live, but also to have their own manufacturing facility, if you will. 
And Paul, when he comes to town, finds out that there is another group of tent makers because he himself was a tent maker. And so he finds out who is in his guild and he meets up with Prisca and Aquila and he begins making tents with them at their house. And they're able to minister to Paul and care for Paul and house Paul. There's so many connections we could make here, but just for a moment, consider these two. Number one, the humility of ministry. I think today... Uh, Paul would be a celebrity if he were alive. Paul would be treated really well. Paul would be flown first class from conference to conference. Paul would be given a very generous honorarium. Paul would be careful that he looked the part and that he always uh, had what he needed. He would be wined and dined. I mean, Paul would probably get away with having quite an extensive rider so that wherever he went, he made sure that he was treated properly. It wasn't like that for an apostle in the first century. Paul was dependent on at least this one woman to cover his needs financially, and he was dependent on these friends for a place to live. He went place to place, not in luxury, but in in poverty and dependence. Second thing is that in God's providence, he allows wicked, brutal dictators to displace his people for his own glory. Prisca and Aquila probably didn't want to leave Rome, but they did because they were forced to. And when they did, they set up shop in another city, not knowing that it wouldn't be long before Paul the evangelist and apostle would meet up with them and partner with them in the ministry. He calls them here, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, and they weren't there just in the good times. It says here that they risked their necks for my life, to whom... Not only I give thanks, but, strong contrast, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Just consider the scope of their ministry. Ronald Reagan used to tell the story that when he first became president, he was meeting with a high-ranking official in the Republican Party, and this official turned to Reagan and he said to him, I just want you to know that I am with you through thick. Reagan said, what about thin? And the guy said, welcome to Washington. <laughs> this is not the way that Prisca and Aquila treated Paul. They weren't saying, well, I'll be with you through the good times. I'll be with you when everything's good. I'll be with you when people are listening to your message and the church is growing and we've got everything we need. They were with him through the most difficult times as well. In fact, so much so that they literally put their necks on the line They were willing, if need be, to die for the sake of the ministry. I haven't yet had people that I've served with forced to go that far in terms of their partnership in the ministry, but I believe there are men and women alongside me who would, and you can see why he loves them so much. Verse 5, he says, Greet also the church, the ecclesia, in their house, You see, churches in those days met in homes. This would have been the only way that a church could meet. They didn't have their own buildings till about the second or third century. It was not normal for a family to meet by themselves. That wasn't the definition of the church. The church was the physical assembly of multiple families who were in the one family of God. And you would do that at the home 
that was nearest to you and large enough to accommodate you. This is exactly the testimony from Polycarp when he was on trial. In fact, he said this before he was martyred. Oh, I'm sorry, Justin Martyr said this. During his trial, the Roman prefect said, where do you Christians assemble? And Justin Martyr responded, we do not, as you suppose, meet in one place. For our God, the God of the Christians, fills heaven and earth, and therefore he is present anywhere. We can meet any place and have communion and fellowship with him. When I go to Rome, I have a home where I go and remain, and those Christians who desire to hear me teach come into that home. That's the way the church met. That's the way the church meets in many places around the world still. That's the way the church met when I visited it in China. That's the way that the church meets when the church is not able to meet openly and freely. And I will say one thing about meetings like that, if you've ever been a part of one, incredibly sweet. There's something incredibly sweet about being with other believers who are meeting together in a small group, in a home, knowing that what ties them together is the inevitable persecution were they to try to do it more publicly. But this Prisca and Aquila, faithful partners in the gospel, willing to lay down their lives and even host the church. He says also to greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. I must confess that as we move through this list, some we will know very little about. In fact, this particular individual, this is pretty much all we know about him. He was obviously not the first convert to Christ in all of the Asian region. This would have been the first person that Paul had the privilege of leading to Christ there in Asia, probably a little more localized than it might sound. But he was obviously a brother in Christ and one that was greeted possibly in the house church that Prisca and Aquila met in. And then verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Mary is a Jewish name. It's one that was very common, one of the most common names back then. But this would have been a Jewish woman who has worked hard for you. Notice the past tense. Maybe an older woman, but one who had served faithfully. Greet also Andronicus and Junia. They are my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known. Literally, they are outstanding to the apostles. And they were in Christ before me. Paul turns the attention there in verse 7 to this couple, a man and a woman. He calls them kinsmen, means that they were believers, but they were also fellow prisoners. They were also willing to actually go to jail with Paul, this husband and wife. And you might recall that, that jail in those days was different than jail today. In those days, you were put in prison, and if nobody came to visit you and provide you with food, you starved. And Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy when he says, bring my cloak and bring the parchments. In the book of Hebrews, we are told to go and visit those who are in prison, not just because they're lonely, but because they would starve in those days if you didn't. And here, this couple was willing to go with Paul to prison to suffer the same things that he was suffering. Now, it should come already as perhaps some surprise to you just how many women feature prominently in this section. Scholars have noted that 
It was not very common in those days for women to be mentioned, especially by name, and especially with such high regard as they are here. Phoebe, Prisca, Mary, Junia. Later, we're going to talk about Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis and the mother of Rufus and the brothers and the sisters who are with those in verse 14 and Julia in verse 15, as well as uh, a sister of one of these brothers and all the saints, men and women. This particular couple and Andronicus and Junia, they were, they were kinsmen, they were fellow prisoners, but I looked to Junia especially, she elevated along with her husband, equal players. And this is especially astonishing as the plural is used, they are well known to the apostles or among the apostles. There are two theories here. One is that they were both apostles, not capital A apostles like the original 13, but apostles, they were messengers, they were those who were sent out with the gospel. The other theory is that they were simply well-known and well-respected by the existing apostles. Either way, these were people that were very prominent. They were held in much respect. And so it wasn't like they were just the bottom of the barrel that had to go to prison with Paul. They were the elite ones. They were the gifted ones. They were the, the ones who excelled. And even they were willing to put aside all the comforts and go with him into prison and suffer. These are true partners in the ministry. Look now at the next section. We're going to call this the slaves. So we've looked at the the supporter, the partners. This next section, I think, should go together because most of these, I believe, are probably slaves. Verse 8 says, "Greet, Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. These three names were very common among slaves in those days. Again, we don't know much about them except that they are in the Lord and they are in Christ. I love the way that over and over again in this section, I think 10 or 11 times, Paul describes people as being in the Lord or in Christ. He says to greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Now, Aristobulus was the the grandson of Herod the Great. His family would have included those who would have been imperial slaves, this whole group of individuals. Furthermore, greet my kinsman Herodian. Herodian obviously named after Herod. And then greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Narcissus was um, a pretty self-centered guy from what we understand. Historians believe he was killed about three years earlier by Nero. He was not a believer. He doesn't say greet Narcissus. Narcissus is dead. But greet the people of Narcissus. Literally those who were owned by Narcissus. So uh, scholars believe this entire section is, is all a group of slaves. People that worked from the imperial court. People who were owned by wealthy Romans. People who were themselves in the service of others. Uh, The Roman church was filled with slaves. Born again slaves. Greet all those slaves. Paul Paul isn't just saying greet the important men. He isn't just saying greet the rich women. He is saying greet the slaves as well. Even the slaves were important to Paul. The same apostolic weight of the writing and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit directed a personal warm greeting, not just to the rich and the elite, but also to the poor, also to the weak, also to the humble, 
Isn't that a sweet contrast to today? I mean, it seems to me like most people only think about the elite, but Paul was thinking about everybody in those churches. He loved everybody in those churches. He had a personal relationship with everyone in those churches. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor, male or female, slave or free. When he would write lines like that in the book of Galatians, he wasn't just trying to be poetic. He was being legitimately concerned with explaining to the people who read the letter that the gospel is a gospel for everybody. And far be it from us as a church to ever present ourselves as a church that is most accommodating to a certain class of people, but not so much to another. Because in so doing, you actually tarnish and besmirch the very glory of the gospel and the image of Christ. So, let's consider for a moment, by way of application if we can, how significant it is to love the insignificant, at least in the world's eyes. This was the pattern And I believe this is exactly the way that we can model it to the glory of God. Now, moving on, we also see here a group which we can just call the workers, I believe. This would be in verses 12 and 13. He says, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. I just have to stop there for a moment. I I don't want to just, you know, burden you with a bunch of like, this Greek word means this and this name means this. But this is great because those two words mean like lovely, dainty, and voluptuous. That's what it means. So these were two sisters, maybe twins. So, so it, it says, I want you to greet, you know, Miss Lovely Dainty over there, because the dainties were not just trying to sit back and be lovely and dainty and not get their hands dirty. These two women, known for this particular character trait, perhaps they were wealthy, perhaps they were beautiful, perhaps they were special in some other way, they were the ones who were rolling up their sleeves and getting in and doing the work. That's why they're mentioned here. Didn't matter what their culture told them they should do. Didn't matter what their socioeconomic class told them they were supposed to do. They were compelled to do this work of the gospel as well. And so they were willing to come right alongside Paul and be a fellow worker. And he greets them with that sort of commendation. Greet also the beloved Persis. This too is a woman who has worked hard in the Lord. He says, the beloved Persis, as opposed to my beloved Persis. Most scholars agree that the reason for this is that Paul didn't want to confuse anyone by calling a particular woman his beloved. Got to be careful how that plays out. Paul adopted the Billy Graham rule, you know, like he didn't want to be alone with a woman in a car or a hotel room or anywhere else. By the way, that rule has like been come under fire lately by some people. They like make fun of it. What's the matter with you pastors? Listen, I'm going to tell you right now as a pastor, I'm going to do the Billy Graham rule till the day I die, all right? And you can make fun of it if you want, but I never want to be in a situation where there could be an accusation of me being compromised with another woman. Amen? You don't want that either. I've had enough of that in the church and among pastors who claim to be followers of Christ. In fact, you need to pray for pastors. Pray for me. Pray for all of our pastors that we would never be in a situation where we'd be compromised in that way. People maybe make fun of Billy Graham these days and say he's archaic and say he was old-fashioned, but there was never an accusation against him, was there? May it be that all pastors can say the same thing when they stand before the Lord in the judgment. 
And that just comes from one pronoun. So there you go. But this Persis is one who has worked hard in the Lord. She was not somebody who was victim of some slack hand. She was willing to do the work. In verse 13, greet Rufus. This is a beautiful statement. Rufus was uh, the son of the man in Mark 15, 21 who carried the cross of Jesus. This is greet Rufus. But not just Rufus. Notice it. This one who was chosen, this one who was elect in the Lord, this one who was predestined to salvation, but also to his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, just give ourselves some context here. Rufus and his father, as we see in Mark 15, were in Jerusalem during the time when Christ was crucified. Rufus' father was the one who was called upon to bear the cross of Christ and carry it for him when he stumbled. It wasn't too long after that that the resurrection occurred and then the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God fell upon so many and people were converted. And it wasn't too long after that that Paul, who back then was named Saul, stood and held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen to death. This family, who was a a father and mother, as it were, to Paul, were the very same ones that likely were aware of exactly what Paul did before he was converted, including being a conspirator in the stoning of Stephen. If you don't think forgiveness has to run deep in the church of Christ, then you don't understand the gospel. At the risk of belaboring this, I'm always moved when I consider the fact that Paul would write letters to churches who were filled with people whose relatives most likely died at the hands of evil men who Paul instigated to kill them. Could you hear a letter read to you by the man who orchestrated the murder of your parents? Paul said here that Rufus, his family, and his mother, It's like a mother to him as well. (laughs) This is just the joy of hospitality. Some of you have a gift in this way. Some of of you can be a mother to all. Um, I know some of you in here, you're you're like a mother to everybody. People come over to your house and they just immediately feel wrapped by your warmth, by your love, by your provision, by your cooking. I think this is what it meant. If you were to translate this differently, and also his mother who cooked so well for me, loved me, embraced me, brought me in, provided for me. Here, this rugged apostle, this guy who's out there doing his own thing, preaching the gospel, getting beaten and shipwrecked, is the very one who can, in a tender sort of greeting, say to an older woman, you've been like a mother to me, and everyone needs a mother. Well, this brings us to probably the most generic section of the greeting, and I I will need to wrap it up here, and and that is we've moved from his supporter to the partners, the slaves, the workers, and and let's just call this last section the churches. I, I think these are more or less larger groups, maybe groups that met in a home that were churches, greet a syncretus, phlegon, Hermes, He produced nice handbags for the people in Rome. No, not really. 
Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters, you could translate that, who are with them. This first group, I think they're taken together. Maybe they were elders in a church. Those are all male names, by the way. Elders in a church. And all of the brothers and sisters who were with them. And then in, in much the same way, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister. I'm not sure why she doesn't get named. And Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Once again, maybe a home church. Maybe couples that have people together every Lord's Day to, to gather and to worship. Just a note on worship in the early church, it usually happened every day. It almost always incorporated a love feast together where communion was celebrated. And because many of the people were slaves and were not in charge of their own schedule, it had to happen very early in the morning or very late at night. Not only that, but whether you were in Corinth or in Rome or even in Jerusalem for that matter, nobody set aside the Lord's Day, which was Sunday, which was the first day for worship. There was no weekend, there was no day off, so you would have had to get all your work done and then go gather with the body, or you'd gather with the body and then do your work, and nobody gave you the time off, and it was almost every day. And I do mean that to be somewhat convicting for those of us who attend church when it's convenient, when there's not something else going on. I've got nothing else to do, I'll come to church. Maybe I'll make it there two times a month. Evening service? Oh, no way, it couldn't possibly. Sunday school? That's nine o'clock. Do you realize how early I'd have to get to be all the way here for nine o'clock in the morning? Those are not the attitudes of the early church. And, and beloved, I'm saying in love as your pastor, make gathering a priority. It is more important than anything else. Now, I don't say that because I don't like to preach to an empty room. I don't like preaching to an empty room. But I say that because by the authority of God and the Word of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, He has instructed us to do that. This is not optional. Work is not more important. Sports is not more important. Nothing's more important. In fact, for many of us, we wouldn't be drawn away by things if we raise up the next generation to cherish it as well. Now, I say that without judgment, not condemning anyone. But I put it out to you as a reminder and as an encouragement. Because I think there is something unique that occurs in the physical gathering of the body of Christ for the purpose of worship and preaching of His Word. You know, this is why some of the old-timers like Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't even want their sermons recorded. He said, what's the point? Once it's over, it's over. He also said he wasn't a very good preacher. He said, I wouldn't walk across the street to hear myself preach. I'm glad that somebody did not listen to Lloyd-Jones. In fact, they started recording him secretly. I don't know if you knew that or not. But he was so committed to the gathering of the body. We are one body, one service, one gathering. We're committed to that here. And I believe that when Paul commends these groups, he's, he's likely commending these small, little, what you would call local churches that would meet together in homes and encouraging them to keep doing this. Don't forsake it. Cherish it like you're supposed to. Listen, you're never going to appreciate it as much as when somebody has taken it away from you for a while. Remember 2020? 
how quickly we've forgotten and how quickly it becomes optional again. And then he ends with this beautiful statement, greet one another with a holy kiss. It's from the word phileo, means to share warm affection. Warmly greet one another. Let's apply it to say in our culture, whatever a warm greeting is, you don't, have to, you don't have to kiss people if you don't want to or if you don't want to be kissed. I've been to Russia a couple of times teaching, and I was always warned that the old generation in Russia, when they get together, they kiss. Like the men. Is it like that in Hungary? That's gross. <laughs> you, you must stop that, Julius. Do not perpetuate that. But they would tell me that you're gonna, some old man's going to come up and he's going to grab you and he's going to plant one right on your lips. <laughs> so every time I would come up to one of these old guys at the church, I'd come to greet him and be like, hey. <laughs> Got a couple of kissed shoulders, you know. I mean, look, we're weird too. I mean, I bet they come here and say, I don't know, I went to that church over there in America and like, all they know how to do is this like awkward Christian side hug. It's like our version of a holy kiss. What's warm affection? Show warm affection. Can we be a warm and affectionate church? Can someone say yes? yes? After the service is over, be warm, be affectionate. If it's a new person just visiting, you know, work your way into it. But be warm, be affectionate, have fun, get together, play board games. Do the things that Christians do together, not just in a church service, but get, get together and enjoy each other's company. And when we come here on a Sunday morning, please don't come at like 10.35 and then bolt out of here the minute the last song starts. Stay. Let us love you. You love, but let yourself be loved too. Paul says this to all those Christians in Rome. Greet one another that way. Love one another. And all the churches of Christ greet you. Paul did a lot of traveling to follow up with the churches that he had planted. And he says, of all of them that I planted, all that I serve, they all greet you as well. I had the privilege this week of being in Louisville for some meetings with some dear brothers. And they all come from wonderful gospel-centered churches and they bring greetings. And there's something really special about going to another church where you know that they cherish the same things that you do and the instant sense of connection that's there. Paul says of these churches, they greet you. They warmly greet you. They would receive you when you come to visit. They are your real family. They are more family to you than your actual family. And for some of you, it's the only family you've got. So enjoy it. Receive it. And thank God for it. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this wonderful concluding section of Romans. And we pray that what we've looked at this morning will be an encouragement to us all. I pray especially for those in our midst whom you have entrusted with the stewardship of wealth. I pray that you would work in their hearts and minds to live out what you taught in your parable when it says, don't just have a dinner with all the people who will someday pay you back. Don't only reach out to those 
that you want to network with, but rather reach out to those who can really give you nothing in return. And in so doing, model the glorious gospel of Christ who came to give to those who could never give him anything in return. Lord, I also pray for those in our midst who may need to suffer someday for the gospel, that they would even now be preparing, lest it ever come to what our brothers and sisters are experiencing in Eastern Europe now and have been experiencing in many other places around the world. Father, we also ask that those who are slaves, as it were, maybe the ones who feel insignificant, would be encouraged today by this message and by the teaching of the New Testament elsewhere where it says it is really the unseen parts that are more important. For those that are workers, I pray you'd strengthen their hand and focus their minds and encourage them that they would continue to excel still more. And for churches that preach the gospel and love the truth, Churches that understand the relationship between the law of God, the hopelessness of our condition, the glory of grace, and the hope of the gospel would flourish in this city. We are not competing. We are commending. And we ask that you would do a great work in North County. May you would raise up those who are able and willing to represent what the true body of Christ is and be welcoming of those who go between them. For we pray these things for the glory and honor of our Lord and Savior, and we lift up our voices now in song to express it. Amen.